Hi, everyone. My name is Shannon Calder, licensed therapist, and I'm joined by Dr. Kathy Barrett, forensic psychologist. We talk about all topics from a psychological perspective. Welcome to Tara Talk. Hi, everybody. This is Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. It sure is. It is. Here we are. Um, today on the show, we are in uh, the fourth part of our true crime psychology uh, episodes on Richard Kuklinski. So we're going to do that. And then, uh, yeah. So what we'll do is the first section of this is going to, I'm going to cover his relationships. So he had two marriages and five children total and we're going to talk about some of the dynamics in the relationships and uh, tackle that because I think there's some interesting psychology that comes out of him in relationship to women right so we're going to do that and then the second piece will be kind of wrapping up we're going to jump ahead and wrap up how uh, he was arrested and what he was convicted of and a little bit of that and yeah, and then we'll have our little um, reflective conversation afterwards. And I guess we could reflect on all the parts mm -hmm. now since it was four parts. So let's start. So where we left off chronologically, although I know that last time we talked a lot about diagnosis and more of his um, personality makeup, but we I believe we left off right around the time he had just had a couple of his... Um, first hits for the mafia, meaning killing people for a living. And he was a little bit employed by them, but also a little bit employed by uh, the gang he was in and uh, robbing, basically, for money. And, and pretty much figuring out any way he could make money. That was kind of what he did. And was very good at it for his whole life, in fact. So Richard was married... Um, so you may remember that he was living as a 16 year old kid. He was living with an older woman that he had met in the pool halls when he was hustling pool. So he ended up living with her and, so that he didn't have to live at home basically. And that those were his, some of many of his first sexual relationship uh, experiences and his relationship. And he was doing that. So Eventually, that relationship, um, he, he widely talks about having not been in love with Linda and that it was kind of a means to an end. It was a way to, of course, have sex. Uh, but he was also very young, right? So, you know, you can take that into account. He was mm -hmm. like 16, 17, 18 in, in those years. And what ended up happening was he was still with her, you know, for a few years and he... I think he became really resentful and he used to beat her up and um, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of affection or love and she becomes pregnant. So when she becomes pregnant, then he gets very violent and he starts to kick and punch her on a regular basis and even goes so far as to punch her specifically in the stomach so that she'll lose the baby. She, he doesn't want the baby. He doesn't, he's not attached to that at all. He, he wants it to go away, but it doesn't work. Um, and she has Richard Jr. So what we know, generally speaking, about people in domestic violent, violent relationships and also about uh, violent psychopaths is a boy baby 
with a woman is, you know, a threat mm-hmm. to to him mm-hmm. and their relationship. So that's a piece of what's happening. But the thing is, is that even though he is indifferent towards Linda and indifferent towards the child, and then there's a second child that comes along, he's indifferent to these children. He still is severely protective of them. So, which we see a lot too, you know. So he's, but but it's because he sees them as their his property. I was just about to say it's almost like, um, you know, I don't want them, but nobody else can fuck with them. If, Absolutely, if they're going to be fucked with. I'm going to be the one who's going to fuck with them. Absolutely, and and he owns them. They're yeah, mine, and right. and like they're mine to beat up. They're mine to reject. They're mine. Yeah, yeah, property, and. <laughs> So, and this is, and there's going to be multiple stories of this, but this is, this is the first story that I'll say that demonstrates what we're talking about. So one day uh, where Linda lived, there was a super, I guess, that managed the building. And this super was abusive to the kids and mean and directive with the kids. But Linda never wanted to tell Richard because by this time, Richard was widely known as a bad guy. He carried guns, he carried knives. uh, He hurt her all the time. So he didn't want, she didn't want anybody to know that this was happening to the kids because if Richard knew, then she knew he was going to do something and she just didn't want to make trouble like that. And anyway, so one day, the super slaps the kids for playing in the hallway, literally physically slaps them. And unfortunately Richard's down the street in a bar, probably hustling pool and finds out about it. And of course immediately gets up, leaves the bar, goes down the street and beats him up basically beats. So that's an example of, he could really, he's shown no interest in the kids, no interest in this woman. But as soon as he hears that someone else like deigned to touch his property, then he's going to go and beat them up. And you can see how someone in an abusive relationship would misconstrue that as love. Absolutely. You know, especially if you're so used to just getting the crumbs. Yeah. Like that you look at that and go see at the end of the day, he does care. See, he does care. He beat up that guy for us. Right. Yeah. It has nothing to do with her at all. No, I, I think it actually has to do with not only the property and ownership, but it's, um, did you think that, are you not scared of me? Like, yeah. didn't you know that you're touching, how you dare you touch something? Yeah. Didn't you know you can't mess with me? Yeah. It's all about him. It doesn't even have anything. And, it could have been his car. How, how dare you not be afraid of me? Exactly. Um, but I think this is where the that whole when women fall in love with that bad boy image mm-hmm. and they they love the fact that underneath all this they can be soft blah 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 protection something that looks like protection on the outside especially like in a case like this is not at all what it is but it, it does mm-hmm. all, it often gets misconstrued as uh intimacy and love and all of those things and like you said um i feel like in a lot of the situations clients I have had where I've seen this and the justification because they see this type of behavior and they go, but at the end of the day, he's really just a softie or underneath that he really does care. This, we see this a lot, I yeah. think in, in uh, abuse yeah. dynamics in our work. Yeah. It's very common. And there's a couple, it's not that every relationship that someone like Richard is in looks like this because his second marriage looks a bit different. It has these similar tones, but it looks a bit different. But so 
One more story about his first wife. Uh, so they started, he started spending more and more time away from home and not having to do with her and going out and doing things. And, you know, they were slowly, once there was kids and he didn't want the kids. And so he just started to not be home as much in general. So later he finds out that his wife is having an affair. And now what you can remember from his childhood or his young, his teenage world actually, is that he found his mom having sex in the living room with someone. He mm. decided she was a whore in that moment and, and, a, and, um, and a hypocrite because of mm. all of the God stuff. And he took that to mean, you know, that she was a whore, et cetera. Uh, and then also he has only had sexual at this point in time he has only had sexual experiences with women he believed to be beneath him or um trashy or whatever word you want to use like he looked down on any of the women that he was around and so even though they're his prop well even you know that's how you look down on someone right someone's your property you're looking down on them um like an animal in a way um so he finds out that she's having an affair and i guess someone <laughs> Someone comes in into the bar or what have you. He's always in a bar, I guess, just like his dad, right? Uh, comes into the bar and tells him that he, they have seen his wife going into a motel room with a particular guy. And so, of course, Richard immediately leaves and goes and busts open the door. And there they are actually in the middle of having sex, which is not a great visual no no it, and and you can imagine and of course i'm making this up but you can imagine the trauma flashback of that's how he found his mom you know that i just i can imagine that sort of scene oh yeah would be a huge trigger yeah um for him and it was and he proceeded to beat break every bone in this guy's body except for one so it was a scene where he he the guy was on the bed and he literally stomped on him and threw him around and it, you know it's a big guy he wasn't he wasn't you know 300 pounds at that point but he was still six five and um, known to be a big guy and a mean guy and a guy not to be messed with so he proceeds to break every bone in this guy's body and then he turns to her, his uh, Linda, and he says that if, you know, if you weren't the mother of my children, I would kill you right now. And so instead of killing her, he um, takes a knife and he cuts off each of her nipples mm. and leaves her that way and leaves. And they never really connect or have a relationship after that or. You know, I don't know the details of how that goes, but the story is that that was the end of their relationship. But he remains married for a while, technically, in the eyes of the law. Um, and I didn't read anything about, you know, charges being brought or any of that. You know, I don't I don't know that she did anything, you know, after that. So that was the end of that relationship. So. What ends up happening is, so this this is a really interesting part of his story, is that 
he begins to have a very bad run in life. He began, you know, the gambling that he was doing, he starts to lose all the time. He, the jobs that he was getting starts to dry up. The pool hustling, he starts to lose. It starts to go in a pretty negative direction for, for him as well, far as, well, go ahead. It was gonna say, it's kind of like the law of averages, right? Like after a while, if you're fu fucking around this much and you're mm -hmm. hurting people and it's going to come back in some way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, he just uh, it goes south for whatever reason, and 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 then he's got to get a straight job basically, and so he goes to work for a while for a trucking company, uh, and so you know being muscle like loading, unloading that kind of thing, and he goes to work for the trucking company and. He's got a straight job, which, of course, he hates. He's not good at that kind of thing. And he's looking for ways to hustle every chance he gets. Um, but the the part of the story I want to highlight is that uh, a young woman named Barbara, who happens to be 18 years old and reminds the boss of his daughter, <laughs> the boss of the trucking company, uh, gets a job at the trucking company uh, in accounting and... It's interesting because there's a day when the boss, who has this sort of paternal feeling towards Barbara, catches Richard and Barbara speak, talking like, you know, over the water cooler, whatever that is in a trucking company, uh, and immediately goes to Barbara and says, you know, brings her into the office and says, don't mess around with him. He's bad news. And she's like, well, I wasn't planning on messing around with him. We were just talking about the weather or whatever. Mm -hmm. And the story goes that she really wasn't like, she really wasn't, she was 18. Um, she was a virgin. She was new to things, her first job type of deal. Like it was really wasn't in her head. And then the boss goes to, this is where like doesn't, it's not a good tactic really. <laughs> then the boss goes to Richard and says a similar thing. Like she's a good girl, stay away from her. Mm -hmm. And Richard at that point hadn't really had any designs on Barbara either because he sort of said she wasn't my type. You know, I'd never dated anybody like that before. He sort of didn't see himself dating someone like that. Um, kind of too good for him in a way. And he kind of knew it. Mm -hmm. And then, but then see what that spikes in it is his like, well, I'll have whatever the hell I want, you know? Right. And he immediately like yells at the guy and quits because he's been, you know, shamed, right? Or kind of psychically attacked by like, what are you talking about? For one thing, you're making me feel bad about myself. And two, I'll do whatever the hell I want. Who are you to say, you know, and plus his reactions to paternal type stuff, mm -hmm. forget it. So she, uh, I think he, I can't remember exactly how it goes, but they end up seeing each other. Either he stops by to get his check or uh, something happens and they see each other and he tells Barbara the story that like he got fired over her kind of uh, context. And her personality is that she feels immediately bad. She feels bad. He, she doesn't know anything about him personally or that he's this connect, you know, bad guy or killer basically she doesn't know that so she feels terrible she's like i feel so terrible you got fired over me oh you know don't worry about that there's that whole conversation and then uh so she kind of invites him out 
like, hey, well, I'll, you know, I'll buy you a drink. I don't feel really bad, this kind of thing. And and he's like, okay, you know, that's mm-hmm. fine. So they end up getting to know each other in that way. Still no real designs on it. But what ends up happening is that, you know, she's, she's going along with it. He's charming. He's handsome. And he's very polite with her. Brings her flowers, takes her out. You know, it's all, it's, um... Well, it's what we see in relate. So this is where the narcissist is in the relationship. Whereas I would say like the like bombing, love bombing. right? Yes. Like the first relationship that we were talking about, the first marriage was much more like primitive psychopathic, how he feels about himself and his mom. Straight up abusive. Yeah. There was nothing. um, There was no love. He wasn't in love at all. Well, and there's what he feels is love. Exactly. There wasn't any of the idealization and nope. Yeah. No pedestal. Interesting, interesting. I wonder how much of that has to do with age. Yeah, I mean, I, I he was twenty six by now, so we covered a but little bit was, of territory. He was how old when he was with Linda? Um, started at sixteen. Yeah. So there's an age differential, and there's also just her, her as a person. Like he thought she was a, you know, he he respected her, is what yes. they said. Is yeah. is he he respected? Um, he found out she was a virgin and that was like, what, wait, what? I don't understand type of thing. He didn't know that there were. And how empowering for him to take that. Yes, absolutely. Power control, but also that, you know, she's only ever known him type of vibe. You're talking about the, the second. The, yes, yes, yeah. yes. Well, especially coming out of the relationship with Linda too and how mm-hmm. that ended. I'm sure that felt really empowering for him. Yeah, absolutely. And and so, but I, I do want to highlight too that she was warned to stay away from him on the first day they ever met. Yeah. You just, don't want this. Just one. <laughs> you don't That's want one. This. You know, I, I want, I just want to say as a, as a cautionary tale, as we tell this story, part of um, what's happening when I talk about the relationships is I'm, I'm very aware that um, some of our listeners may have experienced abusive relationships or are experiencing them now or have experienced having narcissists in their life or narcissistic abuse in their life. And so I just want to keep highlighting the kinds of things that happen. And when Barbara looks back on it, um, you know, now mm-hmm. <laughs> or even 30 years later, cause this is a long time ago, this was, you know, in the sixties, um, what, you know, the cautionary tale is she was warned to stay away from day one mm-hmm. and the cautions keep coming. So, um, he did start, they did start dating, obviously. Um, there was that warning. There was, then he meets the family. He meets her family. Mm-hmm. And they immediately get, one of them in particular, I think it's her mom, gets immediately bad vibes and bad feelings. And, you know, my daughter's a good girl. She's, <laughs> you know, God-fearing, mm-hmm. Um a vir- you know, a virgin, a good girl, a smart, really smart. She did really, she's a really smart person with a job. And, um, and so the family takes a little bit of a, like, you know, hold on. And they even, so they warn her against him. So then what ends up happening is I think it's the aunt. Yeah. The aunt gets very suspicious and has him checked out. Has her husband, I think, like a, the uncle, like background, like go thing. check him out, like yeah. follow him around, go ask oh. around about him. Yeah. So the uncle goes and asks. They're Italian, by the way. I just want to say that Barbara's family is mm-hmm. Italian. Um, 
they go and check him out and they go and ask around the places he hangs out and the uncle finds out all about him. Not so much the serial killer part of Mm -hmm. him that really nobody knows except for him, but the carries guns and knives, has worked for the mafia, Mm -hmm. all the stuff that's the word on the street. Mm -hmm. So he goes and finds out all of that, comes back, tells the aunt. The aunt takes a meeting with Barbara and basically tells her all of that. Okay, so this is like, wow. So we hear about Kuklinski and about the marriage and everything that's in the media. And if you just look at this story really lightly and you just read the headlines, it's it's about like, oh, you know, she didn't know anything about it. Now, agreed that her her she has still talked about the fact that she didn't know the extent of it. She didn't know the hundreds of, you know, the tens of thousands of people that were harmed or killed by him. Um, She certainly didn't know about the serial killer portion of this in his personality and all of the animals, you know, all of the details we've gone into. She found out about a lot of the mafia and all of that stuff when when he was being sentenced and they were talking about it. And then I think she learned more when those documentaries came out in the 90s because she didn't know any of that. But I do want to highlight that she was warned on the first day and then she was also warned at this point where they had found out real facts about him in that moment and then she was told all about it and then her responses were that that was all in the past. Mm-hmm. Justification. And that she was what he was waiting for. Right. She, was the, she was the, the one that was going to change it all. And we him. see that a lot. Yep that the uniqueness yeah and and so that's part of her ego in it and again she's 18 so we consider that but i but, you know you could be 40 and get yeah, into this for absolutely. sure but but she's 18 so that's a le- even even harder he's not that way with me yeah he and he wasn't at that mm-hmm. moment in time he wasn't and so she had that to go on um and that he was, that was in the past and that he wasn't that way and that, you know, he had promised her. So he, she talks to him about it. He says, that's in my past. So I'm not going to do that anymore, et cetera. And then what's interesting about it is that he's falling in love with her. He really does. Um, he's put her on a pedestal. So let's be clear about narcissistic love. He's put her on a pedestal. He sees her as a good girl. Uh, he's, he trusts her. He sees her as someone he could trust, which was, that wasn't really an easy thing for him. He loved the family. Um, when they had their first Christmas together and he, w- he she invited him to the family home to have Christmas with her big Italian family and they ate all day and there was lots of love and affection and, you know, he cried about it. She found him out back crying about it. Like he didn't know, he didn't understand. They all gave him gifts. He just, and he kind of asked her like, is it always like this? And she said, of course it's Christmas. Like we're, this is family. It's Christmas. Of course it is. And he just, it was, he just didn't understand. Mm-hmm. And I remember, cause that was Christmas Eve. And then I remember he, the next morning he, he shows up at the house again for Christmas day. Cause it's like a 24 hour thing. And he, he had gone out on Christmas Eve and bought them all gifts mm. because he sort of didn't know that, you know, that would happen. That and so, yeah. and he just, um, he took to it 
And so partly it's that it's that projection, but partly I do hear in him that little boy that didn't get. Well, I was about to say it's almost like um, there was a the validation and um, she didn't threaten his defenses, mm-hmm. at least at that point. Mm-hmm. His, his defenses weren't threatened. And what we know about narcissism is they're, you know, narcissists are one big walking defense mechanism. And it sounds like up until that point, every there there was however much vulnerability a narcissist can actually demonstrate it sounds like he was to whatever capacity a narcissist can do this he could open up a little bit with her mm-hmm. and allow that um he just was, trusted her he trusted you know? her i mean it was purely selfish it was what he how she was making him feel mm-hmm. but it was probably the closest to love he ever felt that's 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 what he says i mean that's that's what the what he felt at the time um there, there was, of course, this feeling of, you know, he had never felt loved either. And I think, you know, as they were falling in love, she loved him and treated him with respect. And he saw her as a better person mm-hmm. than anyone he'd ever known. So if someone you trust and put on a pedestal actually loves you and you can see that they love you because he knows what that looks like in someone else... I imagine that was a whole new experience and it was like, it's interesting though, how he didn't it. Well, I'm sure it sounds like he does eventually, but it's interesting how that also didn't threaten him and he didn't reject it. Cause sometimes no. you'll see that too, where mm-hmm. when it is that, and the person knows that they will, they'll almost punish the person for mm-hmm. that. Like, how dare you make me feel, <laughs> you know what I mean? For sure. Um, no, not for him. And I, I've, I've, I've heard this kind of story a lot where it's like, as soon as the, as soon as you're on the pedestal, then what for him, what it was, was he had to have her, then it became obsession. Mm. And so what ended up starting to happen, and this is a story I happen to have heard a lot of, is that then it was like, everywhere she was, he was there. And oh, the yeah, the and, and he wanted to be with her all the time, paranoid, possessive, and yeah, yes. Mm-hmm. And from a sort of a self psychology perspective, he's borrowing herself all the time, so mm-hmm. he wants to feel good about himself mm-hmm. ultimately. Um, and if he's around her, he feels good about himself. Well, I think that's why uh, many narcissists are drawn to very strong people, mm-hmm. is because if we look at that extension piece of like, oh, if I'm with you, then that's then part of me, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I think he was really feeling that. So um, we're going to take a little bit of break, a little bit of a break. And there's a little bit more about this, but then I kind of I want to get into um, more about his uh, crimes and what I see as the reasons why he could get away with it for so long, because he really did. Um, there's all this killing up to this point, and then we haven't even really actually started his, you know, 25-year career with the mafia. Mm-hmm. So, which obviously we're not going to be able to dissect that in the next half an hour. But uh, I want to. There's a couple things I want to talk about. So we're going to take a break, and we'll be right back. While we take a break, go follow us on Instagram at Terror Talk Podcast, Twitter at Talk Terror, or on our Facebook page, Halloween All Year Long. If you prefer email, it's terrortalkpodcast at gmail.com. So reach out. If you like us, you can help us by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes, or check out our Patreon page. We upload new episodes every Wednesday and Friday. Keep coming back, but first, stick around for more of our show. Thank you. 
Hi, everyone. We're back. This is Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy talking about Richard Kuklinski. This is our last episode in a four-part series. It sure is. Yes. So before the break, we were talking about um, begin the before, <laughs> the before the marriage with Barbara, his second wife, and the wife um, that the media most mostly knows uh, that eventually had three of his children. But what is happening right now is they're in their courtship. So the courtship phase is going really well for both of them, except for she's, she's on the fence about this whole thing. I mean, she's taking the warnings pretty seriously. And so here comes another warning. Uh, <laughs> so I mentioned before that the, his obsession gets sort of intense. Um, and what we know and what we understand, generally speaking, about narcissistic personalities is when they like you, it's a single-minded attention. It's persistent. It's intense. Um, it can be uh, it can be back and forth flighty where you don't know where you stand, but it can also be a very intense direct light on you where they become obsessed. And that's what we have here is and, and Barbara starts to feel it. Barbara starts to say, uh, I feel suffocated. <laughs> I don't. So she starts to feel suffocated. She starts to feel like she wants space, etc. So you can imagine how that goes over. Uh, so she eventually tells this to Richard and she says, I am feeling, I want space. And so they're having this conversation, I think in the car. And if you imagine Richard in the driver's seat and her in the passenger seat and those sort of old kind of cars where it's just one thick seat all the way to the cross, this is how I imagine it. And he's turned to her and she's turned to him and she's telling him, I feel like we need, I need space. And, um, you know, every time I turn around, like you're there, I just want to be able to go out with my, my friends for, you know, drinks or what have you. And somewhere near the end, he's sort of saying, uh, uh huh, I understand, you know, asking questions and getting a little bit hyped up. And he actually has a knife in his, um, boot i guess and he during this conversation she doesn't see it but he manages to get the knife out of his boot and he's got it in his hand and if you imagine his arm kind of around her oh, on God. the back of the seat and so he's just holding the knife here and he's considering killing her is what's honest about that he's considering like he doesn't know where this is going you know he's about she's about to commit you know an offense by breaking up with him and she somewhere near the end of it, she says, and you know, maybe even see other people. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> Oopsies. So that as, oh, as I was reading that, <laughs> I thought, Oh, this is not, this is she, not going well. She, I know she doesn't die here because I know they get married and have kids. So yeah. what is going to happen? Because, Anybody who's used to working with or uh, working with this type of personality knows that that is not the thing to say. Uh, breaking up when you're someone's obsession is from all the TV movies you've ever seen. That is definitely comes from a lot of reality. So what ends up happening is uh, somewhere around when she says that, he takes the knife and he gives her a little stab in the shoulder. Oh, just a little, little poke? Yeah, he just stabs her right in the shoulder. You know, and you, and I just what I know about him, and I think what our listeners know about him by now is you can just sort of see it being effortless. 
You could just sort of, you could just sort of, he's so brutal. It's so clear to him. And this is the first time in, how long have they been together at this point? Uh, I don't know. I don't remember. Don't know. Okay. I mean, they're still courting. Okay. So so yeah, they haven't had sex yet or any of that. And so this is the first time she's experienced though, this level of. Yeah. Like she's been warned. People, people are telling her like she knows that he's violent, but not with her. Right. That would be terrifying. So, yeah. So, uh, so the reaction hypothetically, I mean, this is what's in the, in the storybooks is that she, she goes, what the, did you, ow, like, did you just, you know, hello. Right. (laughs) And then puts her hand like on her shoulder and it's like, and, and there's blood there and she freaks out. Like, what the hell are you doing? And he doesn't miss a beat. He's like, no, you know, no, we're not doing that. And if you, if I can't have you, others can't have you. Like, that's not acceptable. And so then that conversation happens. So here's the thing. We know that they go on to have a life and kids and everything. So I just want to show you the warning signs. Like, the things we've already mentioned. And then this happens and uh and yeah. she if, as far as we know she's had a pretty normal upbringing and, yeah yeah okay. you know there's there's idiosyncrasies to her childhood as well oh, but not anything yeah i mean there are for all of there's us, a but, warm loving family yeah. behind it all so she had the she's still at that place where she was willing to give him the benefit of she's the doubt. also incredibly innocent that's that's what was yeah. just about to come yeah. out of my mouth is there's there's this willingness to give him the benefit of the doubt because she's never known anything like this before that paired with the trauma bonds already starting to form. Yeah. I think I'm guessing by this time she's in love with him. Yeah. Um, it's incredibly seductive, this kind of personality and he's very good looking and powerful. And she, you know, like Linda, she's got a feeling of, you know, Maybe, you know, I don't know, like attachment um, that is not going to be like that with her. Uh, I think that's a a big part of it for most people who get into relationships with these personality types is we want to be the exception. Mm -hmm. I think that's really common. It's just because what you can't see when you're in it is you're just the next one in line but that person really makes you feel like you're different and talks to you differently. They'll talk about their ex. They'll talk about, they'll make that person crazy. They'll make that person. So what they're also doing though, is giving you the message to not do that and to do. So there's so much manipulation involved Mm -hmm. um, that, yeah, at this point she's probably feeling very unique and special and Mm -hmm. different and she's going to save him. And yeah. And I, and I can't say that he hasn't, you know, already started to push and pull her. Sure. You know, I, I imagine that the roller coaster has already started where, where he's, you know, he's, um, charming and wonderful and also brutal when things might ignore her or might. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because what, what does end up happening and I'm, you know, I'm fast forwarding a lot and that's okay. Damn it. (laughs) Um, is he he knocks her up so he eventually takes her virginity and that's a big deal he talks her into it etc because she you know she came from a family where uh you're not gonna have sex until you're married Mm -hmm. but 
uh, the story goes that, you know, she was talked into it and kind of um, in that way, a young woman can be by the man that she loves, etc. So, but it is going back and forth. He is physical now with her. He does um, intimidate her physically now. Uh, he also, you know, what ends up happening is he knocks her up eventually because that's what happens when you don't use protection. So she didn't have any access to protection. That wasn't a conversation she had in her family. They didn't even know she was having sex because she's not supposed to have sex until marriage. And so there's no openness, unfortunately, about having any kind of um, pregnancy preventative measure. And he refuses to wear a condom. Mm. And when he when she gets uh, pregnant, it's very kind of clear. I mean, it's clear to me. I imagine it would be clear to her family had they because they do eventually obviously find out um, that that was his plan all along is that you know, knock her up and then she has to be with me mm -hmm. and then we're always connected. And mm -hmm. that is another thing that um, often will happen in those kinds of power differential relationships is in, in straight relationships where they can do that. Uh, they'll knock the girl up and then they're connected forever. Right. And so of course he's hurting her by now. And he ends up, um, I think, making her, there's some moment when he makes her, she does something and he makes her sleep on the porch or something. And the next day she loses the baby. Yeah. But they've already gotten married by this mm -hmm. point. So now they're married. She loses the baby. And they just continue on. And by this point, they are... You know, he has no problem, like, slapping her in front of her family. I mean, this is a kid who, this is a guy who, as a kid, when his brother was murdered by his father, just they went about their day mm -hmm. with the kid in a wooden box right. in the living room for how, I mean, he's so desensitized. Oh, my God. And he says to her, he says... Are you're still you're upset about the right. like losing the baby like the next day or something? And that's not gaslighting. No, that's no, no. him really. No, no, no. She's like, yes, detached. of course I'm upset. Yeah. And he's like, I, I'm, I don't understand. You're the, but it's gone. Like you're upset. It's just, it's gone. So, and and I did truly get from what I was reading, like in those moments, like he, he really just like no, yeah, he that, does not understand. That was not like a gaslighting. That was like no. a like death doesn't mean. No, relationships don't mean anything. Attachment doesn't mean anything. Relationships are all a means to an end for him. It's yeah. all about power and control. One of her relatives eventually died. I'm just remembering this. I'm not sure chronologically where this fits, but one of her relatives dies and she's really upset. It's like her grandfather or grandmother or something like that. And he was close to this person too. You know, he's in the family now and they have the funeral and he's a gentleman and whatever. And he comforts her at the funeral he does all the things you do and is polite to everyone and is the you know the family has really begun to really like him and they see that he's in love with her and all of that and and he, it's the same reaction like well yeah but she's gone and so i yeah. i don't you know i i, I see that you're sad but eh, you know <laughs> moving on There's it's just like no, it just doesn't even there, doesn't yeah. even connect 
So speaking of death, I guess um, what I would like to talk about a little bit in this last section, you know, so, well, there's a few, couple of things. One thing I got to say, Kathy, is that I feel as if there is more to be discussed with this story, mm -hmm. um, with his story, with um, with the way his life goes about for the next, I'd say, 25 years, because by the time he's in a relationship with her, they have with Barbara, he ha they have three miscarriages. She loses three babies and then eventually gets pregnant and holds on to the baby. And it's, you know, and we go forward from there. Plus, there's 20 plus years in the mafia. Mm -hmm. um, plus, there's his capture. That's a whole story. And then. Um, the documentaries that they did on him in the 90s, there's actually a lot of backstory of, you know, what he would do and what he wouldn't and who he refused to talk to and all kind of the mm -hmm. drama that comes with the narcissistic personality, mm -hmm. even behind bars. <laughs> um, and I think for the the Terror Talk show, this has been great because we've really gone into the depth of his He's psychological ma yeah. makeup and mm -hmm. diagnoses and how he was born and made. But I was thinking that maybe there's a possibility, I don't know, in the spring sometime that we might do a couple of more discussions on the stuff I just mentioned that hasn't been a part of the psychological piece necessarily, but I think there's psychology in it and maybe do a couple episodes for the Patreon page. Just as extra yeah. content for that. Um, I did not plan to do that, but as I got more and more into the story, I think, you know, we, we don't want to go on for months and months on one person. We like to mix it up, and we know you guys like to hear about different things. So I feel like we've done the psychology of this a lot of justice, but there is like a whole another half of his life and um, criminal criminality that is is interesting. Yeah. So maybe we'll do that. Yeah. Um, that said, I'm going to talk about a little bit about his time in the mafia. So what ends up happening is he... The short story is, is that he does go straight, as straight as Richard can be. He really does make a promise to her to go straight and get a regular job um, and does that. Mm -hmm. um, and then he's in the regular job, which happens to be in New York at uh, Film Lab, actually, in the entertainment industry. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, very quickly, he's finding the hustle and starts to uh, rip off the material and sell it on the black market and do all that. And then eventually gets into uh, porn and um, producing porn and also distributing it. So there's a whole thing that's going on there. But to her, he's got a straight job. But then he's got a couple of kids and he's does he's doesn't have any, you know, he's got a he feels as if he's got to move forward with his mm -hmm. um, life and then gets back into uh, being a mafia hitman as a profession and then does that for 25 years mm -hmm. or so. And in that time, what he's widely known for is his creativity in getting rid of bodies and also in how he kills people. So, I think what's interesting about him is that he got away with it for so long. And I think there's reasons for that. So I want to throw some of them at you and maybe talk a little bit about why that is. So one of the first things I think is that he obviously started out by killing people that 
for lack of a better way to say it, didn't matter, or he thought that they didn't matter, that no one, that the police officers thought didn't matter. So homeless people and uh, prostitutes and, you know, derelicts from bars that didn't, you know, that, and and I also think he got really lucky. There are so many stories in his career for lack, also for lack of a better word, that are luck where he messes stuff up and in this day and age you couldn't even imagine how he would get away with it i was just about to say i wonder how much of it had to do with when like the era and things i think it partly is and so that that's a great question because one is that there was no dna testing so if you think about that there's no dna and there was no fingerprinting database till the 80s no database uh there's no interagency communication so he's killing people all over the place but like the boroughs aren't talking to each other. And they're also, and this is also about police prejudice in the sense that they also don't connect to that all of these homeless people are dying. Yeah, they don't care. And then the other people that don't matter are the mafia people that he's killing, mm-hmm. right? So they know, you know, a, a police officer knows that's a mafia person that did something wrong and is now dead because of it. But they're not investigating into well, and they're also, who did it. And they're also not going to mess with the mafia. Right. So there's a lot of that going on. Or they're on. working with the mafia. Uh, yeah. I mean, exactly. <laughs> the, the amount of police corruption. If you read, you know, L.A. Noir is a great book. I recommend it to people who, if you really want to see police corruption and working with that underground, mm-hmm. it happened. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And if, and we're talking about, you know, the 70s. Mm-hmm. So he goes back to work for the mafia in the early 70s. So if you look at just that first decade of it, I mean, I and and so there but there are also things he does. Remember, you know, he's been studying killing for a very long time and revenge for a very long time. And so he's developed a sophistication already around he gets rid of every weapon after one use. Mm. So he uses it in a murder and he'll get rid of it. Uh, He also would shoot a victim with two different guns so that they would think that there were two people that were killing this person. I've often wondered why killers don't do that more often. Why they're all not smart. Yeah, because I mean, how many how many forensic shows do you watch where they're like comparing the bullets? Even studying Ramirez right now, you know, the same way you'd think that they some of them would be more sophisticated, but but no, no. Um, he would kill them in numerous ways. So one of the things he's famous for is the many different ways that he would kill people and also torture people. There's a pretty famous story about um a how he would take a mark is what they call them into into a cave and tie them up and leave them there and videotape it and and have a video of the pretty famous story and have this video of the guy being um slowly killed by rats eating him yeah there's a big difference between taking somebody out as as a hitman for a job mm-hmm. and then actually being a sadist well and he was a sadist and he would do what he was directed to do most mm. of the time. Sometimes he would just kill people because they looked at him wrong in a bar and he'd just shoot him in the head in the back and walk away. But for his contract jobs, which is what uh, this, this particular job is what I'm describing as one of his contract jobs, he would be told, tor- you know, make them suffer or don't make them suffer. 
Um, there was one where he was told to um, that it was personal and that the guy should suffer and that he should put his the the man's uh, credit cards in his anus and that mm. and that that was a requirement of the job. Like he would take his marching orders Swipe of like this. Yeah. Oh, oh, <laughs> ouch. Um, <laughs> um, so this was one where he was supposed to torture the person. Mm -hmm. But he was also, he also videotaped it and then, um, you know, watched it. Yeah. And apparently he would, he, there, in the interviews uh, that are widely available on YouTube, there, he talks about that and he talks about how that was one of the times when he felt weird or unsettling. When he was watching, when he when he was watching back the video oh. of the guy, and so what what ends up happening in the conversation is they talk a little bit more about it, and I think it's Park Dietz that says uh, something about how you know it takes that amount of intensity to have him feel something, something, yes. and not even anything, but he felt a little weird. Yeah, and I think that I think that's the word he used. I don't really remember right now, but I remember it was a softball word. Did he? <laughs> Sorry, was he asked to record these or they? I don't remember. Because I wonder how much of it too was like a trophy for him. Yeah, I don't remember. I, I don't think he was asked to, but but he might have been asked to the first time. I'm not sure. And maybe um, when we, if we I mean, do he's the... not a, he's not a serial killer, so maybe it's not like a trophy thing. But that's, I mean, why else would you record something like that? Well, his, well, I can tell you or what he said. was it to like improve says, his tactics but, or what? I mean, yeah, it was, it was about watching to see how long it would take and trying to get per perfecting his craft right well and he he's leaving a camera there he's not going to be there 24 7 sure. and it takes a while so he's watching it to see what happened but God, he also was very awful. clear about you know and and i think um park Dietz kind of says to him you know a average people actually would feel things <laughs> you know, with most of the things you do. And it just for you, for your knowledge of yourself, mm -hmm. it took this kind of an intensity to have you feel bad, feel anxious, feel sick to your stomach, feel whatever he felt. Mm -hmm. um, so that was the difference between him and, you know, most of humanity. But I, I think parts of what he did, you know, he didn't talk about his murders to anyone. Right. And that can keep you safe for a really long time. Sure. Um, that's how people get into trouble a lot. And uh, ultimately what ended up happening um, in a very quick uh, wrapping up of what happened was that ultimately, you know, he got older. He did start to have friends. But anytime he really had a friend, he ended up killing them. Um, but then he did start to reach out. He did start to... Um, make mistakes and by make mistakes I mean talk about things brag about things uh, and what ended up happening is the FBI was wise to him and they were actually they actually suspected him of three different murders and a bunch of robberies and created a task force around him but they didn't they just didn't feel like they had the juggernaut they didn't really feel like they had the thing that would put him away and so the, an undercover guy um, went in, an FBI agent, went in and befriended him. 
And there are also widely available tapes of some of their conversations um, where they ultimately got him admitting on tape, uh, Dominic was his name, the FBI agent, was going to sell him some cyanide. They thought that was their way in as they posed as this guy's going to get you some cyanide. And so on the phone, when Richard is going to buy the cyanide from him, he basically, Dominic gets him to admit that he kills people, that he kills people with, with that, um, sorry, cyanide. with cyanide and that, uh, and asks him if he can hire him. Dominic asks him if he can hire him in that conversation. And Richard's like, yes. And well, how do you get rid of the bodies? And oh, there's always a way. And there's this whole conversation about, so they get him on tape and then they go to trial and that's basically, and then he is convicted and goes to prison. What what are you thinking? I, well, I'm, I'm thinking a lot of things, but um, my first thought is his ability to not talk about it mm -hmm. for so many years. Mm -hmm. When we talk about the difference in severity or the different, um, yeah, I guess severity, between someone who's purely a narcissist and someone who's a psychopath, I think only a psychopath could keep that information to Absolutely. himself. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I think it takes that a narcissist would give himself away. Um, he wouldn't be able to to hold all that information in. He'd want people to know how special he was. And yeah, I and, think. Yeah. And although there's clearly there's narcissism in psychopathy, but I feel like it takes somebody that intensely psychopathic to keep that secret. Yeah. I mean, I think hypothetically we can diagnose him with antisocial personality disorder and we yeah. can also diagnose him with narcissistic personality disorder. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and clearly psychopathy. Yeah. So, so, um, and just to clarify for people listening, if you're not, you know, people can have antisocial personality disorder, but not fall within the PCLR, the standards for the psychopathy. And this guy's off the charts, all of it. Um, yeah. so it does not surprise me. What does surprise me a little bit though, is, his, and maybe this had to do with age and, and um, doing it for so long and maybe being worn down a little bit, but with his paranoid personality type that he was so open and talking about the cyanide and all this stuff. And maybe it's just because it was so matter of fact, but I would feel like the fact that he wasn't suspicious. He started to trust him. He, yeah. had, made, he had made friends. I mean, and, and we can definitely go into this in later episodes, but he had... By this point, he had made some friends, so he knew what that felt like. Other killers, of course, and other people in his line of work, and they would work together on mm -hmm. creative solutions to death. Mm -hmm. um, and then he would have end up killing them because they would end up knowing too much. So here's the interesting thing is that the story sort of goes, and I'm going to dig a little bit more into this um, in the future, but the story goes that... When he showed up to meet Dominic on the day that they, uh, um, he Dominic was showing up with a wire and they were going to do the deal, et cetera, um, and get like the, it was like the last time that they were going to meet. Um, he was actually highly considering killing Dominic that day. Mm. And what he didn't know was that there was a huge police presence there that day, like in the bushes and around. And on that day, he decided not to show up two hours early like he usually does. Interesting. Because normally he would show up really early to a meet like that, being suspicious. Yeah. Um, but he didn't. 
And but he was considering killing Dominic. That's interesting. Like I'm gonna have to kill this guy. Like yeah. he knows too well, that, much. That or, makes sense to me. Right. Yeah. But but like older. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and I do think that there's probably uh, you know a story I could weave together that would show kind of how he got into that. Maybe yeah, yeah, a yeah. Little and bit age whack. does. I mean, risk level drops with age. We know that. And he's been now been doing this his whole life at this point yeah i think it was so tired and you know he was just probably was like whatever yeah so he was uh and, and sorry and also yeah. i mean i know there's the paranoia but there's also with the psychopathy the the limitless yeah um i can i he's gotten away with things yeah. for so long that's what the cops were were saying that was their theory was that that he they felt he was untouchable yeah how wouldn't you i would feel that way at that point absolutely i've been killing people for all my life and i'm already 50 or however old he was it was 1986 like who's gonna catch me now and if he they was haven't born caught me in 35 now. he yeah. was like 50 51 years old Jeez. and he'd killed hundreds of people yeah i mean there's that but uh, but like with most things it's multi-leveled he he probably did think he was untouchable but he was also tired he was tired <laughs> and older yeah. and you know he would say in the interviews he kind of does say like yeah, I trusted one too many people, you know, like I I obviously kind of lost my edge or whatever, mm -hmm. however he would say it. So mm -hmm. he was arrested in December of 1986 on multiple charges of murder, robbery, illegal weapons violations. He was ultimately sentenced in 1988 uh, to two life terms. And then another 30 years was tacked on after his later confession to another killing. Um, and then he was behind bars and there's stories from that, but he, um, he died in 2006 from a Kawasaki disease. It's called, um, rare. It's a rare inflammation of blood vessels. It's super rare. Mm -hmm. And he apparently told family members that he believed he was poisoned. Mm. So there's that. God forbid his body actually break down on its victim own. Victim till the end. Yeah. <laughs> That's the other thing we see a lot of. Victim till the end. So we're going to take a break and then um, come back for a short discussion and wrap up this series. Thanks so much. Hi there. We're back with Terror Talk. This is Shannon and Kathy. We are at the end of a four-part series on Richard Kuklinski. And yes... I feel like we've covered his psychology pretty thoroughly at mm. this point. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Do you feel like you know him? You're. I mean, I'm the one who presented like, this I one. I feel like I'm glad I, I didn't know him. Right. But, well, there it is. <laughs> but I, I, I feel like I have a good grip on his psyche. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. His, and his personality type. And um, I don't know who to feel worse for, for him or for the people in his life. Or the people who came before him, just a really devastating existence. Mm -hmm. And I, and also just because it lasted so long, so many people like this end up in prison early. Like Richard's younger brother Joseph, at the age of twenty five, twenty six, ended up raping and killing a twelve year old girl, and was taken to the police station and confessed immediately. And, and actually, Richard, you know, saw him at that point and was like, what the hell, what did, what did you do? I don't understand. Why did you, you know, Richard just doesn't understand that. And I think, you know, Richard surpassed his father. 
and his mother's both, you know, they're bad traits. Oh my God. He, like he's like the perfect storm. Yeah. What they're, you know, her coldness and total emotional detachment and his father's total brutality together in yeah. him, like all the bad, all the bad things. I'm, like I, my wheels are just turning. There's just so much to, I think about time the era he grew up in mm. and although we see everything it you know sort of evolves in in manifests in different ways because we clearly still have toxic masculinity now mm-hmm. i think we're more aware of it but when you think about the messages that were instilled in him from such a young age and and what it meant to be a man and what it meant to be in control and how important it was to have that kind of power um, it's just really, some of it's the sign of the time. Some of it is just his hereditary, but I don't know. I try to think of like, if he was born now, this stuff certainly does happen. Mm-hmm. I think there's just more awareness and more protective factors. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of things that are different. Do I think that this could still happen? Absolutely. Do I think it could happen in a little bit rarer form? I don't want to think that it could happen. I don't want to think that someone like this could be as prolific these days. Right. But I am not so naive to think that it isn't happening. Sure. But I also know um, because of the child piece of this, I also know that, you know, most of the time, I think there's a higher percentage. Oh, here's what I want to believe. I want to believe that there's a higher percentage of people that would have reported the abuse he was suffering because people in the school system have CPS and, you know, human services agencies that would have seen what was going on with him as a kid. And so there would have maybe been those reports and he maybe would have been removed from the home, that type of thing. And I'm not saying that the system would be, would have treated him any better, but that might've been something that would have been different. Something that might've been different is that like I work in a program where we work with kids who've been abused all the time and have suffered serious traumas. And these are teams of mental health professionals that go in and help the family, et cetera. Like there's this, these are the kinds of kids that we see. Mm -hmm. Um, Not all of them have this kind of history, obviously, but some do. And some have psychopathic tendencies and some have narcissistic, some traits and borderline traits and PTSD and all kinds of, very difficult diagnoses. Um, so I feel like there's more programs certainly now than there was in the forties, well, you know, certainly. And I think that one of the biggest discoveries in our field over the last, I would even say, I wouldn't even go that much further than 25 years right. is the importance of that, the prevention piece, mm-hmm. right? The primary prevention piece, which means, Getting in there, the second we uh, we assess the environment and that there's a potential for trauma, we want to be able to intervene at that point. Clearly, they didn't have these services at that time. But right. when you look at this, you know, outside of Richard's story and just looking at more from a psychological perspective, when you're looking at trauma and it's um, how complex trauma can lead to, you know, destructive behavior, mm-hmm. whether it's internalized or externalized, is the primary prevention piece. Um, mm-hmm. When I was doing 
a lot of forensic assessments, that was really our aim in the field was to, if we can work on primary prevention um, and help, and I'm going to talk about this on the Shrink Chat show on Friday because okay, something great. came up in the news about okay. um, the importance of, uh, as mental health professionals, allowing people with uh, like pedophilic desires or urges to even if they haven't offended to be able to talk about those urges without having to report them, Mm -hmm. because if we're not allowing that, then, and I don't want to digress here too much and I'm bring this back in a minute is um, if we're not allowing people to safely come in and talk about these things, then we are going to discourage them from seeking help and it could lead to something. So this is a perfect example of clearly we're not at all trying to say that, people who are acting on it or downloading or distributing it shouldn't be penalized, but we're talking about primary prevention. If we can develop a mental health system that encourages people without fear to get that primary prevention, then we're potentially preventing things like this mm-hmm. that we're seeing. So, Yeah, I think you're right. I think the systems that are in place now um, are not perfect, but there are systems in place and there are protective factors in our, you know, as much as we rail against how mental health needs to be this or needs to be that needs to change, et cetera, that is all true. And we will continue to rail against that or with that. It's, it has improved since when he was a kid. And yeah. so there are, I want to think that some of the things that are in place in now in society, plus, and then we didn't even talk, you know, and then we can add in the, the, the law enforcement part of it mm-hmm. and how their systems have vastly improved. And so like we were talking about earlier with, you know, DNA and fingerprinting yeah. and interagency communication and all of the different kinds of systems that were put into place. And that even um, more recently has also hit ahead uh, regarding who has access to the fingerprinting and who has access to the DNA and how mm. that's getting, you know, people who are related to the perpetrator charged mm. for crime. So I guess what I'm saying is this is, the, there's so much in this field that we've been trying to tease out for so many years and it's imperfect, but we're doing our best to, to perfect it or at least um, prevent things this intense or this severe from ever, like you said, I think that was well put, which is hopefully it would never be this prolific. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It just wouldn't have lasted as long. Let's hope. And because, and again, I would say that there was a lot of luck involved. There was a magical thinking piece of this where he began to think that he could do anything because he would do some stupid shit. There are moments when he would really screw things up. There was one time when he got really angry and shot someone in the head, like in a park. Yeah. And he was like, oh, uh, hmm, what do I do? <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> you know, like that primitive part of him that he actually didn't like about himself, that he couldn't control his anger all the time. Mm-hmm. And he ends up, he ends up getting some rope from his car and finding a box from behind a store and setting up like it was a suicide. And he literally thinks of that within like two minutes. He's like, what do I do? Okay. I got some rope. He like hoists the guy up Mm -hmm. and puts the box as if the guy was standing on the box Mm -hmm. and makes it look like a suicide. And he was never even questioned, even though people had seen him before that with the guy. So it's stuff like that where you can see how he would get this magical thinking of like, well, and look at how resourceful in that moment. So resourceful. So again, like I was saying before, it's part, 
partly the system of what we're talking about, partly that he got lucky a lot, honestly, and partly that he was incredibly creative, resourceful. Because he and, didn't have emotions. And, and yeah, he was just thinking about survival, but then he also wasn't clouded with emotion yeah. in those moments. Whereas you and I do something like that, and <sighs> I'm like in a puddle oh, behind the tree, yeah, like, yeah. what the hell do I do? Yeah. Help! I'm calling people. I'm telling people immediately, yeah. totally sending myself down the river. Like, And he's just like, all right, how do I solve this? Problem solved. How do I get out of it? How do I get out of it? How do I not get caught? Um, and go home to my family. You know, there was yeah. some motivation there for him. Ah, so next week, that's Richard. For now, I'm hoping to do a little more conversation with him for the for the patrons on Patreon. Maybe in the spring when I get up the motivation to look into this again because I do find it fascinating. Uh, so what's happening now is that Friday we'll have the Shrink Chat Show, as always. And then next week we are going to do some more. The next couple of weeks we're going to do some more true crime, which is um, we're going to talk about The Devil Next Door, which is a Netflix. I think it's a mini series, right? Yeah, it's a, uh, I think it's five episodes. Yeah, okay, yeah. something like that. And then, and then we do the Shrink Chat every Friday. And then Unbelievable, we're going to get into that story. And I'm actually uh, reading the book on that one as well. And then there's, I think it's also on Netflix, yeah, mini, it is. mini series type thing. And that's going to round out the year for us. And then we'll move on into 2020. Mm-hmm. Wow. 2020. That's amazing. Yeah. All right. So thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. My name is Shannon. This is Terror Talk. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Terror Talk. If you enjoyed this show, there are two things you could do for us. Subscribing and sharing our episodes on social media, as well as writing a review on iTunes. Plus, you could check out our Patreon page. Don't hesitate to contact us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We upload new episodes of Terror Talk every Wednesday and of Shrink Chat every Friday. Until then, goodbye and have a pleasant tomorrow.